Good afternoon. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the fact that this event and our participants are located on the lands of many traditional custodians throughout Victoria and in other parts of Australia. I pay my respects to Indigenous elders, past, present and emerging, and extend this respect to Indigenous participants joining us online today. Welcome to the fourth event in this year's Ideas and Society programme, which is being co-presented by La Trobe Asia. I'd like to acknowledge La Trobe University Vice-Chancellor's Fellow and the convener of the Ideas and Society programme for the past 12 years, Emeritus Professor Robert Mann, and Dr Beck Strating, who is the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia and will be leading tonight's discussion. And on behalf of the La Trobe University community, I'd like to warmly welcome the Honourable Kevin Rudd, AC, and the Honourable Malcolm Turnbull, AC, respectively the 26th and 29th Prime Ministers of Australia. Now, there's certainly been a huge amount of interest in tonight's event. In fact, we've had well over 4,000 registrations, which makes this the most popular discussion the university has ever hosted. I know that you'll be very keen to hear from our distinguished guests, but before I introduce them formally, I'd just like to make a few preliminary remarks. As I said, La Trobe University's Ideas and Society Programme and La Trobe Asia are co-presenting tonight's discussion, so it would be remiss of me if I didn't take this opportunity to encourage you to sign up to their mailing list so you can hear about the many other discussions and events that they'll be presenting over coming months. The Ideas and Society series involves leading Australians talking about some of the biggest issues facing Australia and the world. And its events so far this year have included the ABC's Managing Director, David Anderson, who discussed the role and future of the ABC, former Australian Chief Scientist, Alan Finkel, and Chief Counselor of the Climate Council, Tim Flannery, who considered how Australia can cut its greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050, a discussion about Australia's management of COVID-19, with Stephen Duckett from the Grattan Institute, Rainer McIntyre from UNSW, Michael Toole from the Burnett Institute, and Norman Swan from the ABC. La Trobe Asia also presents lectures and panel discussions with eminent experts, most recently a discussion about potential conflict in Asia with Oriana Skylar-Mastro from Stanford University, Guy Buchenstein from the Asia Society, and Nick Bisley, Dean of La Trobe's School of Humanities and Social Sciences. And if you're free, at 3.30 tomorrow afternoon, Australian Eastern Standard Time, La Trobe Asia is presenting a live podcast re recording with Beck Strating talking to Minakshi Gopinath, who's the Director of the Women in Security, Conflict Management and Peace Initiative, about the importance of involving women in Asian security conversations. So please do sign up to hear more about many of these events and discussions presented by La Trobe University. We pride ourselves on being the place to go for important conversations on the issues facing our world and our region. And tonight is no exception. China's extraordinary rise as a global economic power and military power has been well documented. We've also seen a dramatic breakdown in diplomatic relations between China and the United States with an escalation in trade embargoes on both sides and tensions about espionage and the pandemic. If anything, <clears throat> you could say that COVID-19 has aggravated the threat of a new Cold War between these two powers, and it's becoming apparent that relations are unlikely to improve significantly under President Biden. 
So what is Australia's place in all of this? What does it mean for our region? What does it mean for trade and security? How does it affect human rights considerations or the global fight against climate change? Why have relations between China and Australia deteriorated so comprehensively? And what can be done? And moreover, what's the policy dynamic between Washington, Beijing and Canberra? So we are absolutely delighted that two former Australian prime ministers with unparalleled and deep expertise in China relations are here to consider these and other questions. And no one is better placed to contemplate these matters that are so important for Australia's future. So it's my honour to introduce them now. The Honourable Kevin Rudd, AC, was Australia's 26th Prime Minister and served as Foreign Minister. Since 2015, he's been President of the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York. When in office, Kevin led Australia's response to the global financial crisis, which was regarded as the most effective policy response in the developed world. His government also ratified the Kyoto Protocol, delivered the national apology to Indigenous Australians, implemented a mandatory renewable energy target and a national school curriculum, negotiated major reform of the health system, introduced national paid parental leave and pursued the world's first plain packaging regime for tobacco. Kevin is the author of two memoirs, Not for the Faint-Hearted and The PM Years. The Honourable Malcolm Turnbull AC was Australia's 29th Prime Minister. He had international careers in law, business and the media before entering politics. As Prime Minister, Malcolm reformed Australia's personal income tax, education and childcare systems, oversaw the legalisation of same-sex marriage and announced construction of the Snowy Hydro 2.0 power scheme. He also led the largest peacetime investment in Australian defence capabilities and set out the nation's first national cybersecurity strategy. Globally, Malcolm played a leading role in reviving the Trans-Pacific Partnership after the United States withdrew. Since leaving politics, Malcolm has resumed his business career and he's a senior advisor to global investment firm KKR and an investor in and advisor to many Australian technology businesses. Malcolm's memoir, The Bigger Picture, was published last year. And finally, my colleague, Dr. Rebecca Strating, is Executive Director of La Trobe Asia and a Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at La Trobe. Beck is an expert on the international politics of maritime disputes in Asia and Australian foreign policy. She was an Asian Studies Visiting Fellow at the East-West Centre in Washington, D.C. in 2019 and was awarded the prestigious Boyer Prize by the Australian Institute of International Affairs in 2018. So it's now my great pleasure to hand over to Beck for tonight's discussion on the challenge of change with Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. Thank you. Thank you to the Vice-Chancellor for that introduction uh, and to our guests, Mr Rudd and Mr Turnbull, for joining us this evening. I would also like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting this evening. I am thrilled to be a part of this exciting and important event and I would like to begin by discussing recent events and issues in Australia and China's bilateral relationship. 
Since last year, we have witnessed a significant deterioration in the relationship, uh, with Australia calling for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, revoking Chinese nationals' visas and cancelling Victoria's controversial MOU with China under its Belt and Road Initiative. For its part, the Chinese Communist Party, or the CCP, placed what appeared to be retaliatory tariffs on a range of Australian exports, including barley, coal, seafood and wine, and produced its now infamous list of 14 grievances against Australia. Both states lodged complaints against the other with the World Trade Organisation and a freeze on high-level diplomatic relations remains in place. So I would like to start with you, Mr Rudd. In your view, why have relations between China and Australia deteriorated so comprehensively in recent years? Well, uh, thank you to the Trove, and it's good to be on this platform with um, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Um, dealing with the Australia-China relationship does not infer a monopoly of wisdom on either side of politics. It's inherently complex and requires, I think, the combined wisdom of the nation. I think it's important to step back a little in answering your question and to try and frame where we are with Australia-China relations in the broader context of, first, where has Xi Jinping taken China uh, in the period uh, since uh, 2012. Secondly, how does the US relationship, in fact, drive the dynamics of the Australia-China relationship? And then thirdly, uh, what has actually been added to the complexity by some of the rhetorical flush flourishes of the current Morrison government? So let me have a minute or so on each of those points, if it's okay. On the first, the truth is, uh, if you read carefully uh, the writings of Xi Jinping and observe his uh, foreign policy and international economic policy and security policy actions uh, progressively since 2013, increasingly uh, with uh, greater intensity since 2015, uh, it is uh, beyond doubt that Xi Jinping is doing two or three things. One, uh, pushing Chinese domestic politics further to the left Two, uh, pushing China's uh, centre, let's call it gravity on economic policy, further to the left, by which I mean more to the party and away from the private sector. And thirdly, uh, we also see uh, the uh, resurgence in Chinese nationalism, uh, which in part has underpinned, in part has underpinned, a more assertive uh, Chinese approach regionally and globally in the prosecution of China's... Um, uh, national values and interests. So that we have a Xi Jinping dynamic, which is actually a change dynamic. Um, when, I was, uh, when I left office at the end of 2013, we were barely one year into the Xi Jinping period. And so we had begun to see this unfolding, but it's become more intense, to be fair to my successors. Second point is the US dynamic, frankly, is central to our discussion about the Australia-China relationship. To pretend otherwise is just not being empirical. Um, the Chinese, uh, in their regional policy, um, uh, are driven by reunification with Taiwan um, sometime, in my judgment, in the decade ahead, more towards decade's end or early the following decade than in the immediate near term. 
It's seeking to adjust its maritime boundaries in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. And you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to work out that puts you uh, plumb up against uh, the American for deployment of American forces in Asia and America's uh, long-standing security commitment to Taiwan under the Taiwan Relations Act. And so whether we like it or not, these two uh, forces as a product of Chinese domestic policy imperatives and Xi Jinping's timetable on Taiwan are bringing the two, as it were, giants of the 21st century into more direct forms of collision, but not just on security policy. You see it on foreign policy more broadly. You certainly see it with international economic policy settings on trade, investment and technology and on human rights, and let's call it ideology. The final point in the jigsaw in trying to understand where we are with the Australia-China relationship is given all the complexities of A and B above, that is the China-Xi Jinping factor, the US-China factor, then the responsibility of an Australian government, be it from the Labor Party or the Liberal Party, is to navigate a course through the above. Um, It's difficult, it's complex. But I think in doing so, it's important to separate out what I would describe as the objective conflicts of interests and values between Australia and China, um, our enduring view of human rights, which are universalist as, a first, as opposed to the Chinese tradition. Secondly, our longstanding alliance with the United States, which is robust and not about to change. Um, but at the same time, navigate as productive an economic relationship and multilateral collaborative relationship with Beijing as possible. Um, And I think you can walk and chew gum still, albeit with difficulty. My critique about where we've landed with the current Australian government, um, particularly through uh, Prime Minister Morrison and and now Defence Minister Dutton, is a predisposition to use what I describe as the rhetorical overdrive stick to take what I would describe as a set of objective problems which have to be navigated for which there is no perfect course. There are simply a range of less than imperfect courses. Um, But when you start to play domestic politics with these things and start to crank up fear of China in the domestic Australian political debate as a tool in favour of a conservative political proposition and hopefully from their perspective against um, a Labour Party tradition of trying to work with China, that's when you take a problem which is already 5 out of 10 in intensity and you turn it into an 8 out of 10 problem. So that's my critique in terms of the Australia-China dimension. We might get back to uh, the domestic politics situation in a little bit, but I would like to ask Mr Turnbull, Malcolm, uh, to respond to Kevin's analysis of what's changed in the Australia-China relationship and some of those issues around uh, navigating the course, because looking back, uh, it seems that it was really around the 2016-2017 period when Australia started to push back against the CCP's influence campaigns. And I mentioned the list of 14 grievances and towards 
the top of that list uh, were policies that were enacted under your government, including the introduction of foreign interference legislation and the ban on Huawei from, uh, uh, from the 5G network. And of course, Australia was a global leader in that particular move. Uh, so what would you say are the origins of the deterioration in the relationship between Australia and China? And was the deterioration avoidable from our end or is it a necessary consequence of asserting Australian sovereignty? Well, thanks, Beck. Uh, look, I, I listened carefully to what Kevin said, and you know, by and large, I agree with everything he said. I mean, his analysis is right. In summary, uh, uh, Xi Jinping changed. I mean, the the China that we confront or we encounter, engage with, led by Xi Jinping, is very different to the China led by his predecessors. You can't get around that. Uh, he has taken a much more um, assertive, aggressive, belligerent uh, approach, uh, whether it is in, um, you know, building um, islands in the South China Sea and uh, in defiance of international law, uh, whether it is in, you know, massive military build-up, of course, which goes with a, a bigger economy, but also in the, you know, much a more aggressive diplomatic approach, you know, the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, the 14 demands, truly one of the nuttiest things I've ever seen. Uh, the, uh, you know, it, it just shows you how out of touch, uh, out of touch with the Australian reality, uh, China's, the Communist Party's, you know, diplomats are in delivering, you know, that uh, log of claims. But, you know, I, I think uh, the reality is that uh, she is pursuing an agenda that is focused on Chinese domestic public opinion. I mean, he is a very, he's a very, very thoughtful, experienced, intelligent man. I've had a number of, I've had a number of, you know, formal discussions with him, and a number of very lengthy, very private discussions with him too. And he knows that the approach that is being taken, he must know that it is counterproductive. But I think he is catering to domestic public opinion. I can't see any other explanation for it. Um, as to Australia, look, as I, you know, I described this in my book, and, and Kevin wasn't really confronted with so much of the same circumstances. But when I was PM, I found that when we were at odds with China, or when China was complaining about Australia, the Australian business community tended to side with China. Uh, and in fact, the vice-chancellors in particular decided with China. There was one distinguished vice-chancellor of Sydney University who berated me for sinophobic blatherings, I remember. Uh, and you know, in fact, he had he basically had the same talking points as the Global Times. Now, happily, I think people have worked out that um, you know, all that was doing was doing the Communist Party's work for them. Uh, so, you know, I agree with Kevin. I mean, the big change has come from China. I think as from Australia's point of view, you, 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 can't, you can't give in to bullying, right? You know, if you... If you, you it's, I always say it's, it's, just like, it's like the shopping scene in Pretty Woman. You know, you engage, you start getting into one bit of sucking up and then more sucking up and sycophancy will be required. And you have to remember that when you are in the... particularly as the Prime Minister of a you know, middle power like Australia, <clears throat> when you're in the imperial capital, whether it is Beijing or Washington, they regard deference as their due. 
So the only way to be respected is to stand your ground. Now, having said that, you know, there's there's a you know, you've got to be use nuance and art, you've got to be artful at times and you know, those things are often in short supply. But uh, the you know, if if who is to blame for the poor state of relations, the blame is overwhelmingly uh, on the side of Beijing because there is a concerted effort to make an example of Australia and to, you know, come down hard on us to make us more compliant. It is completely and utterly backfired. So, you know, the if there was a open policy debate in Zhongnan High, which I doubt, uh, somebody would be saying, hmm, this plan isn't working, we better think of plan B. I'm delighted that we have a pretty woman reference uh, in tonight's event, uh, but some <laughs> analysts have argued that uh, some Western leaders, including in Australia, have misrepresented the scale and extent of the China challenge, uh, and that this may lead to a mismanagement of relations with China. And this does uh, go back to the point that you were making, Kevin, around some of the issues of domestic politics uh, and how that's feeding into debates around how Australia manages relations with China. So I would like to get your reflections on the implications implications of a rising China for Australia's national security interests? I mean, what national security threats does the CCP pose to Australia? And is there a tendency for these threats to be exaggerated in the Australian political discourse? Yeah, I, I probably um, wouldn't have used Pretty Woman, Malcolm. I would have gone more for Godzilla or um, King Kong or a combination of the above. And how do well, we navigate? Kevin, Kevin, each of us is notorious for having a tenuous grip on popular culture. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a kid growing up, I, had a, I was a big fan of Godzilla in the black and white originals. So uh, I think Godzilla, King Kong, think about us trying to navigate our way through the streets of Manhattan or Tokyo in the midst of all that. Um, but I'll leave you with Pretty Woman. Um, look, at two or three points. Um, can I echo something which Malcolm said before, which is... Uh, we, for a long time, have had um, various forms of Australian corporate leadership who, had, as a matter of, frankly, uh, uh, essential self-interest, chosen to put their hand over one eye and ignore a large part of the Chinese reality. For example, um, Malcolm just referred to having been attacked by uh, the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University. Um, under the uh, blithering idiot who preceded Malcolm as Prime Minister, uh, Tony Abbott, uh, not only when Xi Jinping visited Australia did he stand in the great uh, hall of Parliament House, Canberra, and proclaim this was the first uh, Chinese leader ever to... Ever, ever to um, is that Tony on the phone, Malcolm? No, it's the doorbell, but it doesn't matter. OK. The, uh, uh, that we're about to have um, a transformation or, or a translation... Uh, to a democracy in China uh, based on a fundamental mis misreading of Xi Jinping's remarks. But when uh, Abbott had also travelled to Beijing to um, pay obeisance uh, to one of the imperial thrones that Malcolm referred to, taking an Australian corporate delegation with him right on cue, you had the likes of uh, Kerry Stokes um, and, um, uh, and, of course, uh, you had our friend from Crown Casino, uh, James Packer, uh, in the media, attacking my own mismanagement of the Australia-China relationship for having been uh, far too uh, critical of things like human rights and national security interests. Uh, 
So the core message, whether it's under our period in office or, frankly, Malcolm's period in office, is that you'll be dealing with an Australian corporate community in part, not in whole, in part, um, who choose to do this um, in terms of the overall reality we are confronting uh, in the People's Republic today. And our job as Prime Ministers is actually to reflect the national interest, not just their individual corporate interests. On the question that you directly pose, which is about what are the national security challenges uh, that China represents to Australia's core national security interests, I think we start with uh, two or three uh, quick points. The truth is, since 1945, um, the United States and its allies and progressively a range of other liberal democracies uh, have built up what we refer to casually as the global rule-based order or the liberal international order. And effectively, it's the rules by which we conduct um, international business, um, not just in the economy, not just on trade, not just in investment, but also our political relations, global norms on human rights anchored into the relevant conventions, uh, policed, so-called, by the Human Rights Council in Geneva. There's a wide fabric of, shall we say, machinery of global governance, which we call the liberal international order. Uh, anchored ultimately in principles of what we would describe as political freedom, social freedom and economic freedom. Now, they're not perfect, and I could give you a dozen examples of how the United States has violated uh, uh, various of those principles in the last three quarters of a century. But in many respects, the system itself is now under direct challenge by China, and we know that because Xi Jinping has declared it as such in a statement at the Foreign Affairs Conference of the Party Centre at the end of 2014, he said, we are now, China, engaged in a struggle, use the Chinese word for struggle, uh, 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 for the future of the international order. And so that of itself is a deep challenge uh, to our longstanding interests. Secondly, um, the, um, you have also... Uh, our overriding national interest is lying in the preservation of strategic stability in East Asia. Xi Jinping, uh, because that strategic stability, apart from avoiding the curse of war and, and huge losses of life, as we saw in the Pacific War, ending in 45, and which began, frankly, with the Japanese invasion of China as early as 1932, um, a part of the war we often overlook, but when literally 15 to 20 million Chinese were slaughtered, uh, in the course of the Japanese occupation. Um, in that desire to avoid a repeat of war, we've anchored ourselves in a series of security arrangements, however imperfect, to preserve the peace since 45. And with the exception of the Korean War, with the exception of the Vietnam War, and what then unfolded in Cambodia uh, just after, by and large, uh, the region has enjoyed reasonable stability. And that's been the foundation stone for this enormous era of regional and global prosperity. If China was to, for example, initiate a military action to retake Taiwan, of itself, that would, as it were, pull the plank from underneath the stability that we've taken for granted for so long. A final question in terms of Australia's national security interests, given that's the specific you know, remit of your question, is that Successive generations of Australian government, uh, governments before mine um, and uh, certainly after mine have had two overriding assumptions about our immediate region. And that is both Southeast Asia and the Southwest Pacific have historically been regarded 
as Australia's areas of uh, direct military interest. In fact, Paul Dibb once categorised them as the ADMI, the Australian Direct Military Interest Area. Um, and therefore, uh, if in those two regions we begin to see uh, the balance of foreign policy power, the balance of strategic power, and the balance of, shall we say, political influence moving away from the United States and decisively in China's direction, particularly driven by the sheer weight of the Chinese economic juggernaut and the size of its economic footprint, it radically alters our immediate strategic environment. So if I was to aggregate the three, two or three sets of challenges, that's how I'd see it. Uh, Malcolm, I'll bring you in here uh, and get your views on the, the sort of the immediate national security threats that China pose. But uh, we have heard a lot about the beating drums of war recently, particularly regarding Taiwan, uh, where some regional security experts have suggested we could potentially see conflict within six or seven years. Uh, and there are other concerning flashpoints in the region, such as the South China Sea disputes, uh, which you wrote about in your memoir. And one of the, the interesting passages uh, that in that memoir relates to the South China Sea and you offer some of the reasons as to why Australia has thus far elected not to uh, conduct US-style surface freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, uh, in part due to a concern that the US might not necessarily have our back if something were to go wrong. Uh, so I was wondering, in your view, what is the likelihood of Australia being dragged into a regional great power conflict? And should we be doing our best to avoid getting involved in such a conflict? Well, we should be doing our best to avoid there being a conflict, full stop. Uh, if the United States was involved in a conflict uh, in the Pacific, uh, we would be bound uh, by ANZUS to and and you know every element of our self you know national self interest too I might add to support the United States so we are an ally of the United States so just as we'd expect them to come to our aid they're entitled to expect us to come to theirs so that's you know that's a fact of life people have got to recognise Ansys as a two way street um, as far as uh, the like you know giving speeches about the drums of war well Pizzullo's speech was obviously a very, very ill-judged speech to make. You know, this is not the this is not the language of calm, level-headed, thoughtful government. You know, you have to be. Uh, I mean, and I mean, I wouldn't be as sharp in my criticisms as Kevin has been, but there have been a couple of cases, and Pizzullo's remarks are one example, where people in Canberra have made, you know, pretty bellicose remarks which obviously play well on Sky News and on the front page of the Murdoch tabloids, but, you know, they're actually not in Australia's interest. I mean, we have to be absolutely strong in standing up for our interests and our values. I do not believe we should take a backward step, and as Prime Minister, I did not. But equally... You don't want to be going around trying to do a sort of antipodean Donald Trump performance of flinging abuse left, right and centre, because where does that get you? It might get you, you know, a few favourable mentions, as I said, on Sky News or somewhere like that, 
but it doesn't it doesn't advance our interests. So so you've got to stand up for your values and your interests. Yes, but you have to do so thoughtfully, diplomatically, and you know, I'll give you a, a practical example. So we decided not to allow Chinese vendors into the Australian 5G, you know, build out. That was a very, very careful process. I mean, we did, I, I tried very hard to find a way in which we could safely mitigate the risk uh, of that. And after a lot of very careful technical analysis, which I've gone on to in my book and elsewhere, we concluded we couldn't. But when we went to Hatna, we obviously had to announce it. Uh, we gave Beijing a heads up in advance. We gave Washington naturally a heads up in advance. We gave the Brits a heads up in advance. We gave Huawei a heads up in advance. And our plan for announcing it was that it wouldn't be an announcement by me or the foreign minister. It would be from the Minister for Communications and the Minister for Home Affairs and just a one-page press release. So in other words, we we, we made substantively the important decision, but we did everything we could to dial down the, you know, the drama of it because... Nothing, no, no purpose was to be served by doing that. So, you know, we, I mean, again, again, I don't, wouldn't go quite as far as Kevin here, but on this point, but when people start using uh, the China issue as a domestic, you know, political grandstanding, chest beating issue to show how tough you are, that is so short sighted and it is absolutely contrary to Australia's national interest. I wonder if I may ask, Kevin, whether you would have made similar decisions on the Huawei. Would you have taken the same approach as the Turnbull government did to that particular issue? I'll come to that in my answer. If I could just build on something Malcolm just said, sure. which is that um, Australian political leaders and, frankly, the political class and the national security establishment need to reflect afresh on a core principle of international relations. It is this. There is a world of difference between an operational strategy and a declaratory strategy. I am, and during our period in office, uh, through our cabinet and national security process, we developed a national China strategy. It was particularly hard line, even though we were dealing with the early period of the uh, Xi Jinping administration, the last period of uh, Regent Tao. But the trend lines were still basically there. However, that was an operational strategy for the government to work to internally and with our closest allies. It was not to be, as it were, articulated as a rolling piece of, let's call it, de declaratory politics, whose principal target uh, was the um, the Australian domestic audience. Um, there is, in fact, um, a deep conflict between an out-of-control declaratory uh, approach uh, to national security strategy and what you actually do on the ground. Many of the things that we did on the ground in dealing with various challenges from China, uh, we would still not talk about today for the simple mm. reason it was a matter of statecraft. Um, but let me tell you, messages were clearly delivered by what we did uh, as opposed to going out and giving a splash to the Daily Telegraph and the Australian the next day, ripping your shirt off and showing how much chest hair you'd accumulated overnight 
on the China question. Um, so I think getting that into everybody's, shall we say, head is really important, particularly as we're gearing up for yet another federal election. And when I look at the Morrison government and the fact that they don't have a lot of runs on the board vis-a-vis the pandemic and its management, uh, the mismanagement of vaccines, the mismanagement of quarantine, um, and let's say a problematic economy, and let's say the debt and deficit has done its dash in terms of an ability to whack uh, the dreaded socialists over the head with now that there are five times more debt and deficit. Are there there any left, Kevin? Under the Tories, under the Tories. No, are there any socialists left? (laughs) They're, yes, they're mainly in the National Party, um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and perhaps you know in certain elements of uh, the current Prime Minister's office, given the magnitude of debt <clears> at the moment. But given all that's been exhausted, my point here is uh, Malcolm's earlier comments about using, as it were, the China factor as a decisive card in the Australian domestic political debate by seeing who can be most hairy-chested led by the likes of Dutton and others, frankly, uh, from their political polling research, might seem from time to time to be irresistible because it makes them look strong and hairy-chested and forward-leaning. But it is not an operational strategy for dealing with the China challenge and maximising this country's national values and national interests. On the final... Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry, no, you go, Malcolm. I thought, yeah, just... Well, sorry, I thought you'd finish, but <clears throat> I was just going to make one point, Beck. Um, I just noted that uh, your your tweeter uh, has twe- has quoted what I said about uh, language and saying um, this is not a language of calm, level-headed, thoughtful government. They're not in Australia's interest. Malcolm Turnbull says on current government's attitude towards China, uh, that's not quite right. I was really just referring to what Pizzullo had said, and I think you could add to that a few remarks of Dutton. As far as Morrison is concerned based on my discussions with him, both when we were in government together and subsequently, I think he would agree with, I think he'd agree with the, uh, you know, approach that I've, that Kevin and I have described, which is, you know, to stand up for your values, but don't, uh, don't try to, uh, you know, get into a, uh, a declaratory um, rhetorical overdrive on it. Now, you know, Kevin would probably say Morrison hasn't been consistent about that. And politicians sometimes do say things that are a bit over the top uh, because you you know you've always got microphones in front of you. But but I don't I I, I don't think uh, Pizzullo's remarks or some of Dutton's remarks actually reflect government policy. I think there's that's more about internal coalition pol- political activity rather than is what the you know the government the government overall would uh, say. That's, that's my own view. And to add to what Malcolm just said, we cannot allow the internal mm. politics of the Liberal Party to determine, frankly, the Australian national security interest here. Mm. Um, because when you start having drumbeats of war language, for God's sake, can everyone just pop a mogadon for a moment? Mm. It is no small matter for this nation to begin having a public discourse about, quote, the inevitability of armed conflict with China and us being in the middle of it, unquote. Mm. This is grossly irresponsible and reckless language to use. The charge which we have had as prime ministers of this country is to preserve the peace. Yep, and meanwhile, you do that through an effective deterrence and a range of other foreign policy actions as well. But to have this loose discourse which emanate, 
bubbles out of each day of the Murdoch media and turbocharged by the most irresponsible elements of the right wing of the Liberal Party, who think this is just a jolly jape, really, that this is just um, all a bit of a frolic, there is a grave danger that through loose language, you begin to create other realities for this country's national security interests in the medium to long term, including how Beijing assesses this country. As I said at the outset, we've got a bucket load of objective problems in dealing with the China challenge. There's going to be a group of people in this country, Murdoch Media, right-wing the Liberal Party, drums of war, who want to take an existing complex, you know, walk full of complexity, if I can use this analogy, and then throw on another half bucket of kerosene Mm. uh, through a whole bunch of uh, rhetorical flourish on top. Uh, I, to paraphrase somewhere in the Bibles, Sufficient is the evil unto the day. We don't need to actually add to it uh, necessarily. If I may uh, step in here, uh, I would like to shift the focus slightly to economics because talking about complexity, uh, we have some issues here in this country about our reliance on trade with China. Uh, So, Malcolm, I would like to ask you about the effects of deteriorating relations with China on Australia's economy. Uh, While it is difficult to separate the effects of China's recent sanctions from the COVID pandemic, the overall net effect of sanctions on Australia's economy seems to be uh, less significant than some of the headlines suggest because of, first, China's unwillingness uh, to touch crucial industries such as iron ore uh, and also because Australian industries have, in some cases, been able to find other markets. Uh, Diversifying trade relations uh, from China is an extremely popular idea with the Australian public. According to Lowy Institute, polling last year, 94% of Australians uh, want the government to reduce its economic dependence on China. So the big question here, and the really quite complex question here, is first, just how dependent is Australia's economy on trade with China? And the second is, are we able to shift our trade away from China, or is this just a pipe dream? Well, look, I I mean, I... You know, our, our economy is overwhelmingly a services economy for a start. So, you know, we, we yes, China is by far our biggest export market, but it's dominated by uh, natural resources, in particular iron ore. And you're right. Uh, I mean, uh, China basically has two sources of iron ore, Australia uh, and Brazil, and the Brazilian uh, iron ore business has been very badly affected, first by floods and then by COVID. Uh, so, you know, we're selling more iron ore than ever and at higher prices. So so our trade balance with China actually keeps on getting better from our point of view. Uh, and you're right that a number of uh, agricultural commodities that have been sanctioned, um, barley is the best example, have found markets elsewhere. The wine industry has taken a hit. Um, uh, you know, look at beef, beef prices, ca- you know, cattle prices are very high. So, you know, the... The, the reality, look, I, I think this pressure campaign against Australia has been quite useful in this sense that it has demonstrated to China that they can pull all these levers and it doesn't actually work. You know, it hasn't actually worked. It hasn't sent Australia spiralling into a, uh, a recession, uh, you know, because of uh, Chinese displeasure. Um, so, you know, hopefully that's, you know, that's going to be an instructive 
experience for them. As to should we have other markets? Well, of course. I mean, obviously, you've got to have, you, you know, you should never put all your eggs in one basket. And the more diversity you have in your export markets, the better. Having said that, I don't can't see anybody else about to buy the volumes of iron ore that China has. I mean, you know, just to get, you know, iron ore is obviously used to make steel. Uh, there's about 1.8 billion tonnes of steel made in the world every year and uh, over a billion of those tonnes are made in China. So, you know, China dominates the steel-making and steel-consuming business uh, in the world. So that's, you know, that's... And, of course, China is seeking to diversify too. That's why they're seeking to develop an iron ore province in West Africa. But, you know, I think that's, you know, that's going to be a long, hard road in every respect. Um, Generally, uh, what, what will happen... With Chinese students, for example, you know, after the pandemic, will we see the same numbers of, of uh, Chinese, you know, kids, young people coming to Australia to study? I don't know. You know, I would hope so. I think we will, frankly. Uh, I, I think we just have to, this is, you know, we've just got to be firm in our position. Don't get in, involved in rhetorical overreach. Uh, just play a straight bat, you know, to use a cr- cricketing uh, metaphor. Just play a straight bat. And not, you know, don't don't retaliate when you, you know, when you get crazy over the top things said, whether it's by diplomats or in Chinese media, just ignore it. Just just bat it away and be calm. I mean, this is one of the big missed opportunities of Chinese diplomacy and foreign policy in the last four years. Trump was a golden opportunity for them, mm. for China to be as unlike Trump as possible you know, to be consistent where he was erratic, to be calm and measured where he was intemperate. Uh, and instead, they, <laughs> she is, and his, you know, his agents have sort of gone down the same Trumpy rabbit hole of bullying and threats and over-the-top uh, bellicosity, which, which, you know, it may play well in the Chinese media, and Kevin would have a better understanding of that than me, but it is absolutely... Uh, set China's standing in the world back. It is actually it is it is richer and it is stronger in a military sense than it was four or five years ago. But I believe China is less influential and certainly less trusted as a result of this. So, if you believe the object of diplomacy is in large part to win friends and influence people, uh, all of this wolf warrior stuff has backfired. Uh, Well, Kevin, I might uh, jump in there. Part of the CCP's diplomatic carrot and stick approach seems to be to uh, reward states when they engage in activities that are favourable to Beijing's interests and selectively punish if they criticise or resist China's actions and intentions. Uh, And Australia is often described as the canary in the coal mine here, uh, yet it's certainly not the only state to have found itself in the Beijing freezer. And it goes back to what Malcolm was talking about in terms of effective diplomacy and whether China's um, coercive diplomacy is actually going to win its friends internationally. So to what extent has Beijing decided to isolate and punish Canberra as a warning to other nations not to challenge Chinese interests and ambitions? Again, I think it's worthwhile just framing this a little more broadly. We are part of um, an alliance structure with the United States. 
Um, and from Beijing's perspective, that actually provides Australia with considerable additional leverage. Um, and that's just a reality. The Chinese come from a tradition of high strategic realism. Um, they come from a political and military culture which looks uh, at the detail of uh, the number of ships, the number of planes, uh, overall uh, aggregate military capabilities, aggregate economic capabilities, aggregate market, aggregate population. And so, frankly, uh, from our uh, national interest perspective, it's quite important that we frame this and our challenge with China is how do we maximally, as it were, uh, exhibit strength but without arrogance and rhetorical flourish in dealing with China? Uh, secondly, um, provide political space and opportunity for continued uh, engagement with China and do so within the one overarching strategic framework. It's possible to do that. The problem with the current Morrison government is they chose really from their determination to be, um, you know, Donald Trump's best buddy on everything, to be a market leader in terms of uh, over-interpreting uh, the American expectation of uh, elements of, uh, let's call it, uh, Trumpian rhetoric towards China, particularly in the last and desperate year of the Trump administration's political existence. So we need to keep that in mind because that frames everything in how we are, as it were, seen in aggregate terms from Beijing. I think secondly, um, on these questions of how do we um, balance uh, and advance of the economic interests, which Malcolm just referred to, the truth is, I don't think there'd be a huge degree of disagreement, maybe some between Malcolm and myself on this, is that it really is a, a question of the future structure of the Australian economy. Because um, you know, we've had comparative natural advantage in the areas uh, of uh, mining and resources um, for a long period of time, um, that's uh, attracted the lion's share of investment capital, particularly from abroad. And the problem is it's led to a somewhat lopsided, in my view, stunted, um, uh, frankly, Australian economic structure. Um, when I was elected, uh, I ran, you may or may not recall, on a platform, quote, we want a country which is not just China's quarry and Japan's beach, unquote, and I want to be prime minister of a country that makes things. And so developing our manufacturing industry, albeit the limitations of a small-scale domestic market, using industry policy, which is where I disagree with Malcolm, to ensure that we had a viable domestic motor vehicle industry, for example, uh, rather than put ourselves in a place of mon monumental dependency on external supply and supply chain from around the world, which now creates, for example, immediate problems <coughs> with people trying to buy an, a car in this country. The waiting times are huge, and that's a product of us being so vulnerable now in terms of our economic structure. But more fundamentally... It's in uh, ensuring that the future of the Australian economy is moving up the value chain in the services sector through the finance sector, through biotechnology, through information technology, through artificial intelligence, to take, as it were, to use an old Soviet term, uh, ironically, the commanding heights of the new economies, uh, the new global economy. That is what insulates us against, shall we say, excessive vulnerability in dealing with China in the future. Because my final point would be, the Chinese have long memories. As soon as there's an opportunity for them to buy Vale, uh, the Brazilian iron ore company, 
um, or to take sufficient equity into it to um, ensure a long-term security of supply or develop their iron ore province uh, in um, southern Africa. Uh, the memories of what has happened the last year or two with this rhetorical flourish out of uh, Canberra uh, will be deeply held and the Australian iron ore sector will be punished, in my judgment, over time. I don't think that was necessarily inevitable, given the structure of all other American allies' relationship with China. I think that's an avoidable piece. It was an avoidable piece of damage. But I'm deeply worried about where we've now positioned ourselves. So I think it requires, again, to paraphrase Malcolm here, calm heads, a clear strategy, a balanced strategy for dealing with the politics and economics and the human rights of, uh, of China, rather than a three-ring circus, which is like an antipodean equivalent of the Trumpian White House. So, to, uh, Malcolm, I would like to ask you about values because it is something that you have talked about, uh, about not having to compromise values. And there is a tendency, I think, to, uh, in foreign policy uh, discussions to, to have this artificial binary between pragmatism on the one hand and values on the other hand. Uh, but, I mean, it seems that it doesn't have to be one or the other. But I think it's important here to talk about human rights because under the administration of President Xi Jinping, there has been disturbing trends uh, in human rights violations, including the mounting evidence of ethnic cleansing and cultural genocide uh, in the Xinjiang region and the rollback of democratic freedoms uh, in Hong Kong. This poses somewhat of a dilemma for middle power activist states such as Australia, uh, which defend liberal and democratic values and human rights uh, on the international stage, yet don't necessarily wield the kind of political or material power necessary to prevent uh, human rights violations and also have these other national interests to consider, such as trade. Uh, so to what extent do you think that Canberra's foreign and defence policy, particularly in how it seeks to manage relations with China, needs to factor in human rights considerations? Well, look, I think it's something we've always got to keep, you know, in the forefront of our of our thinking. I mean, we do have a human rights dialogue with China. It's been suspended for some time. Uh, but, you know, we, we shouldn't turn a blind eye to human rights abuses anywhere, human rights abuses anywhere in the world. But we have to recognise the limits of our power. I mean, at the end of the day, as Lee Sien Lung said very wisely to Scott Morrison when he was visiting Singapore, uh, we won't change China and China won't change us. So we have to be realistic about this. Uh, we have to, you know, make our points, uh, but recognize that, you know, we, there are, you know, there are aspects of, there are unsatisfactory, um, abuses of, all abuses of human rights are unsatisfactory, but there are human rights abuses in many parts of the world. Right? And what we've got to do is make do what we can, but recognise that there are limits to what we can do. And there are limits to what the United States can do, let's face it. I mean, the United States can't do very much uh, effective about Xinjiang. I mean, they're doing trying to do their best with some sanctions here and there. But ultimately, um, you know, these are, you know, there are just there are just practical limits on your power. And we, we have to work with all countries. We have, we have to recognise 
that the China relationship is, goes well beyond trade. I mean, and let me make a point that neither of us have made yet, but it's a really important one. And Kevin and I both understand this very well. We have in Australia at least one and a quarter, maybe one and a half million Australians of Chinese heritage. Okay? Uh, you couldn't imagine modern Australia without them. We have got to be very careful that in the you know, current scratchiness with the government in China, that when you get criticism of China and saying the Chinese are doing this, the Chinese are doing that, we do not have an argument with the people of China living in China, and we certainly don't have an argument with Chinese people, many of whom live in Australia, and of course many live in uh, parts of the world like Taiwan uh, where they have they absolutely do not want to be ruled by the Communist Party. So, you know, again, this is this is where the, you know, the political debate and the language is so important. You know, we, we are very lucky to live in what I believe is the most successful multicultural society in the world. I say we're lucky. It's not we're fortunate, but we've, we cannot take that good fortune for granted. And so we've got to be, you know, the Communist Party in China is very ready to say any criticism of the you know Xi Jinping's regime or his policies or whatever is anti-chinese right we must not fall into that you know we, we we chinese people are part of our family our australian family they're also part of kevin and my family i mean kevin you know uh, i as i said two of two of lucy and my four grandchildren call me yeah yeah which is, you know, as Kevin would know better than me, uh, Chinese for the fathers, for the, you know, paternal grandfather. So I, we, we've just got to, that's something we've got to be very, very careful about because I, I do worry that the some of this political rhetoric, if played for, you know, the local uh, sort of right-wing media peanut gallery, can actually undermine... Uh, something that is very precious, which is the success of our multicultural society. It is an incredibly important point to make there. Uh, I'm just going to squeeze in a couple more questions before we get to the Q&A. I can see that we have a lot of questions coming in from a very engaged audience. Uh, but Kevin, I mean, I want to zoom out a little bit. You've touched on, you know, uh, um, the CCP's kind of uh, ambitions and interests, but I want to get back to uh, this idea of what does China want uh, when it comes to uh, the regional order? What is it looking for uh, in Asia? Um, quick answer to that um, is, um, by the way, echo what Malcolm just said about the challenges of Chinese Australians. In the United States, where I head the Asia Society, part of our mission is to roll back the tide of uh, growing uh, racism in the United States against Asian Americans. And I now conduct a regular interview series, which is Asian Americans Building America, um, which has got Chinese Americans, Indian Americans, every other uh, group, basically saying what they're doing in the construction and the building of the country at large, because the Trumpian rhetoric has frankly made life dangerous on the streets hmm. for uh, Asian Americans. I don't want to see that here, but my uh, Chinese Australian friends will tell me that um, in certain parts of Australia, um, there are concerns. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of Xi Jinping's uh, worldview, um, 
uh, a couple of quick points. Just always remember, I think as Malcolm has under indicated before, the domestic agenda always looms first and foremost. The Chinese Communist Party wants to remain in power, number one, number two, and number three priority. Um, if you fought a revolutionary war over 28 years between 1921 and 1949 and got there through the barrel of a gun, as Mao reminded us, they're not about to surrender by putting their guns down. So uh, buckle up and get ready for this being part of the long-term reality. Uh, the second is uh, what they want is to have um, uh, the reunification of the motherland, as they would use it. Uh, and that means, uh, translated into our worldview, uh, repressive policies in both Tibet and Xinjiang in order to consolidate uh, ethnic groupings within the country who are not Han Chinese. And therefore, we're going to be living with uh, this um, uh, regime uh, dealing with China's ethnic minorities for the long-term future. Um, but the other part of it is an absolute Communist Party determination to retake Taiwan. That's why it is regularly referred to as the single most incendiary issue for the whole region because it catapults into everything else that we've just said. Um, therefore, as I, as I indicated before, ensuring that China is deterred from such a military course of action at some point in the future is the most important thing for preserving regional stability. But the third regional interest, and I'll stop at this, uh, is across what I describe as the East Asian Hemisphere. You know how our American friends always refer to the Western Hemisphere. Let's for a moment sort of think of this enormous corridor starting the Korean Peninsula and ending up um, somewhere in the southern suburbs of Hobart um, and sort of probably out to the Irrawaddy River uh, uh, in the, in one, in, to the west. China wishes to be the predominant economic power in that region. By and large, it now is. Uh, both in trade volumes, but increasingly, interestingly, in foreign direct investment and capital flows. Those numbers are very worthwhile, much watching. And, and anchoring off that to use an attendant foreign policy influence to cause the countries of the wider region not to challenge China's, what they would say is their core interests or values. Um, and that is where we arrive, arrive at points of deep friction. And then, because of the Taiwan objective, uh, to acquire a military capability which causes the Americans at the end of the day, from Beijing's point of view, to conclude that the military balance in East Asia is so far in China's favour and so against uh, the United States that the Americans uh, would not put up their hand to fight over Taiwan and that China secures Taiwan without firing a shot. If you like... That's kind of the basket of, you know, three or four core sets of, of uh, regional ambitions if you stripped all the, uh, the diplomatic language away from it, from the political language. I think that's it in, in its essence. It'll be good now to, to focus on the United States here, uh, Malcolm. You know, the US and China are in this period of explicit strategic competition uh, and climate change is an issue that you spent uh, a lot of your public life trying to deal with. Uh, so how might the United States and China find a way of cooperating on crucial international issues, including climate change, which is, of course, uh, the existential security challenge facing humankind? Well, in the great race of life, you should always back self-interest because you know it's trying. I mean, that's, you know, the, hopefully that's, that's what will prevail. 
John Kerry, uh, who is the climate envoy for uh, Joe Biden, has been to China. He was the first uh, Biden administration senior official to visit Beijing. Um, I, look, I, I mean, there is, you know, the, uh, China has a massive interest in addressing this. I mean, they, they, they have to uh, move away from burning fossil fuels. Uh, the leadership certainly know that. I mean, I've discussed that with Xi Jinping. I've discussed it at length with Li Keqiang here in, here in our home in Sydney. Um, in fact, um, but, you know, the problem is getting from where they are to where they need to be. You know, there's many of the same issues that we face are there too. You know, employment. A lot of people work in the coal mining sector. A lot of people... Uh, work, you know, in, in the steel industry and, you know, how do you green steel? I mean, this is where green hydrogen, I think, is going to be play a big role. Uh, but look, it's a, it, there's no doubt uh, China is absolutely alert to the challenge. Uh, they're not, you know, they, they are not climate denialists, <laughs> anything but. Uh, but the, the, the fact is that um, everyone in the world has to act and, and, and you know, the proposition that we should all down tools until the China, you know China does more uh, is very naive. I mean, as a wealthy, developed country like Australia, we should be in the forefront of climate action, and uh, you know Kevin and I agree on that. Uh, but the and we're not, so you know that's that that's 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 huge huge problem. But I I, I think there is I think. What what the U.S. and China should do this is this is you know the big picture I guess is I think they have to identify boundaries of trust. There's no point pretending that they trust each other on everything they don't, uh, and I think the the areas of trust have diminished in recent years. Uh, but there are some areas where it is manifestly in both sides' interest to cooperate and to and to work in a collaborative, trusting way, and climate is absolutely there. I mean, we are all in the same boat. We've only got one planet, and it sort of doesn't matter whether you are, you know, a member of the Chinese Communist Party or, frankly, a member of Donald Trump's Republican Party in the US. Uh, you're going to feel the scorching consequences of global warming uh, if we don't act. And so, hopefully, uh, that's we'll get some real progress at Glasgow. I mean, Kevin had a rough ride at Copenhagen some years ago when China and America didn't get on. I did had a better experience at, in Paris when uh, Obama and uh, Xi did uh, strike a deal. Uh, and we've got to hope that Biden and Xi will do it again in Glasgow. Well, I'm delighted to see that there is a question that uh, corresponds to one of the questions that I wanted to ask both of you, which is about how does Australia reset the relationship or is there uh, much that Australia can do to reset relations with China? Um, so for th this is our first question of the Q&A. What is the first step the Australian government should take in working to improve its relationship with the Chinese government? Is there an olive branch that either Australia or China could extend? So I might ask you, Kevin, uh, and then get your response, Malcolm. Well, I was asked this um, a little while ago, I think, by Lee Sales on the ABC, and um, my response hasn't changed in terms of counsel to the Australian government, which is talk less, do more. Um, just talk less, do more. It's the difference between an operational strategy 
and a declaratory strategy when, when the latter is driven by, let's call it, um, domestic political interests. I think the second and substantive um, thing uh, would be for um, the Australian government to be at the forefront at navigating a way through the shoals of the US-China relationship, frankly. Um, now, this um, sounds easy to say and hard to do, but the concept that I've advocated for a very long time, last five years, and written on extensively in the United States called Managed Strategic Competition, incorporates elements of what Malcolm just referred to, which is strategic guardrails against, um, let's call it strategic red lines like Taiwan. Um, so that in the four or five critical issues like that, you don't end up tripping into, by accident, crisis, conflict and war. Then in the rest of the relationship between Beijing and Washington, for there to be open, fierce competition in the rest of non-lethal national security policy, foreign policy, uh, trade policy, investment policy, even technology policy, and certainly in human rights. But then thirdly, there's a domain including climate uh, where there is political space left for collaboration and cooperation with the global public goods and the global public interest is self-evident. And beyond climate, things like global debt management, given the mountain of debt that's being pumped out into the global economy as a consequence of everyone's uh, fiscal adjustments uh, and stimulatory strategies to get through the COVID-induced uh, global recession. So I think there's a second task for an Australian government, which is rather than just rip your shirt off every second Thursday and, and beat your chest like some third-rate Johnny Weissmuller in the old reruns of, uh, of uh, you know, Tarzan or Jungle Jim or whatever it was um, and pretend that that's a strategy uh, when it's not. It's, uh, it would be the intelligent approach would be to work with Beijing and the United States and Washington, our ally, in finding a way through to such a, an endpoint, which is a new strategic framework, joint framework, to manage this most perilous of relationships because our national interests are so acute. And then third thing is, uh, by having pushed the pause button in terms of rhetorical flourish, I would be uh, surprised if uh, the Chinese kept pushing, um, shall I say, the aggro button in terms of, um, of uh, their own rhetorical flourish through the wolf warriors. The wolf warriors in Beijing, um, when their report card comes due at the end of the year, again, to, I think, have a bit of a hard time of it explaining the results uh, as China has won less friends and earned more, frankly, adversaries around the world. So I think some wisdom lies in, and I've said this in interviews in Beijing with the Chinese government, with the foreign ministry, and on the record in the People's Daily, including recently, all declared, Malcolm, on your new foreign uh, interest transparency register, by the way, um, that uh, because when we're dealing with uh, foreigners these days, that's what Malcolm's law requires us to do. Um, but I've said there what I've said in the United States and here, which is push the pause button and just shut the up for a bit um, so that we can, frankly, draw breath and go back to something which in the quaint old days we used to call <clears throat> diplomacy. Malcolm. Well, I'll, I'll be more succinct. Um, it's really the same uh, advice Erin um, um, Burr gave to Alexander Hamilton, talk less, smile more. Uh, so I agree with Kevin uh, on that. Uh, the, you know, the rhetor rhetorical flourishes are unhelpful. 
This is what we need to do, and I, I actually did this when I was PM, so I'm, I'm speaking from experience. You need to provide the environment for an off-ramp uh, so that the temperature can subside and a period of scratchiness can, you know, move into the past. Now, uh, in early 2018, uh, the... Chinese government was very concerned that the foreign interference and foreign influence legislation did not get passed. They were very critical of it, and there was quite a lot of pressure on it. There was a bit of bit of toing and froing between me and Bill Shorten about that, which is all in my book. Um, but uh, ultimately, once it was passed, and I knew this would happen, once it was passed, the pressure stopped, right? Because it was instrumental. This is the and a very important insight. All of the indignation and anger and fury that you see from time to time from Beijing is instrumental. You know, this is not heartfelt, uncontrollable emotions. This has got a purpose. And if the purpose can't be fulfilled, it, you know, it'll, they'll move on to the next plan, you know. And what happened was we, both sides recognised through our diplomats that uh, we both acknowledge that... Uh, this had all been a little bit too scratchy, and so we worked out a way that we could just lower the temperature and bring things back into a more congenial environment. And again, I've described all of that in my book, but that's, that's what you need to do. So uh, what can we do? Well, the one thing we shouldn't do is give in to any of these demands, right? That would be the worst thing to do. Uh, but what you should do is... As Kevin said, as uh, Aaron Burr said to Alexander Hamilton, talk less, you know, don't throw any kerosene on the fire or let alone in the wok. That would be what you, you would never hire Kevin as your Chinese cook if he was putting the kerosene in the wok. That would be awful. I was sort of, advising against putting kerosene in yeah, the wok. Yeah, oh, exactly. That's right. Good. Okay. <laughs> Phew. Phew. <laughs> uh, but, the, um, but, yeah, so, so I think that's right, uh, but you want to create... And that's and look, to be honest, this is largely the people that have got to change course are in Beijing. I mean, Kevin and I are both absolutely of the same mind. I think that this uh, bullying exercise has failed. It's been counterproductive, and more importantly, it seemed to have failed. I mean, you know, it's getting written up in international journals all around the world as an example of the limits of Chinese power. So, you know, this has, you know, you could imagine that there might be a discussion in Beijing where Xi or someone says to Wang Yi or, you know, another international policy person, whose idea, whose brilliant idea was this, just quietly? Um, you know, didn't, didn't you tell me the Australians were going to roll over and, and start sucking up to us? I mean, <laughs> this is... So, anyway, it's a, it's a different system to ours, and I have to say... One of the problems we have is that China, the you know, Chinese Communist Party, the leadership, have a much greater understanding of and insight into our politics than we have into theirs, and we have hardly any insight mm. into theirs. Mm. By the That's... way, Malcolm, you said you'd be more succinct. You just ran a minute over me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping tally, <laughs> I see. Yeah. Uh, but I might actually stick with you, Tambul. Uh, Malcolm, but that is, sorry. But, that is, but by the way, that is when you can always, you always guarantee a politician will disappoint you 
when he or she says, I will be brief. That is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the only time I push my starter button on the time. Oh, on, yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> but I will actually stick with you, Malcolm, for the next question okay. because it does Butter. concern uh, your former colleague, uh, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. And I'm really glad to see this question in the Q&A because I was thinking about asking it myself uh, because he's written today that at least in terms of trade, the answer to almost every question about China is India. Uh, do you agree or are there problems with that approach? Well, no. It's, it's, look, it's, a, it, it's just wrong. Uh, you know, it, it is, I think, I think we all agree our relationship with India has been underdone over the years. Um, Kevin started negotiations for a free trade agreement. Um, I continued, I'm sure Tony continued them too, I did. Uh, India has got a very, very deep, long-standing protectionist, you know, political culture. Uh, they weren't even prepared to sign up to RCEP. Uh, which was a very, very low, low, very low ambition trade deal uh, in this region, which was recently signed. I mean, you know, like if the TPP was, you know, 10 out of 10 in terms of ambition, RCEPs are three, so to give you an idea. So, so, so I think you've got to be realistic about uh, what you can achieve in terms of trade um, and... You know, so look, they're different countries, different economies. I mean, uh, I, I think we've got to have, we should be aiming to have much deeper, stronger relations with India. I certainly put a lot of effort into that. Um, you know, I think every prime minister, you know, should, will, should and will do that. But the idea that you can sort of delete China, insert India is just nonsense. Well, I wanted to ask uh, both of you actually about the role of the quadrilateral security dialogue, uh, which features Australia, US, Japan and India, uh, and it seems to be playing a bigger role in an increasingly contested region. Uh, but this was a grouping that Australia withdrew from in 2008 under the Rudd government uh, and was revived in 2017 under the Turnbull government. Uh, and Prime Minister Scott Morrison recently described the Quad as the most important development in Australian security in the past 70 years. Yet it seems to me that there are still really important wow. questions about its purpose and its intent. So I want to start with you, Kevin. Are you a Quad convert, uh, given how the security sh uh, situation has shifted, uh, certainly since uh, 2012? Well, the bottom line is the Conservative uh, line in this country faithfully advanced by Morrison, Inc., and reflected in the pages of the ever-reliable independent Murdoch media that uh, my government torpedoed Quad One is the biggest bucket of conservative bullshit that's been put around in the foreign policy debate in a very long time. And the evidence of that, if you wanted to go to, uh, frankly, the um, current edition of Foreign Affairs magazine in the United States, there's an article from um, yours truly, uh, we simply identifies the chronology. Who pulled out of quad one first? Very interesting. Who pulled out of the first quad was, in fact, the United States. And how do we know that? Through leaked WikiLeaks cables, which has them pulling out of the quad uh, quite early in 2007 because they didn't want to alienate the Chinese at that stage uh, in their combined global war against terrorism under the second term of the Bush administration.
Then on top of that, Manmohan Singh, the then Prime Minister of India, went to Beijing and said, quad, what quad? Uh, my uh, overriding ambition is to maximise our relationship with China. That was, um, I think, about the middle of 2007. Abe-san in Japan, uh, who was the uh, author of Quad Mark One and then later Quad Mark Two, um, then resigned from the Prime Minister of Japan in the middle of uh, 07, was replaced by Fukuda, uh, who was a great friend of the Chinese, and Fukuda unilaterally dumped the quad. And so, and then uh, to add, uh, frankly, the final piece of icing on this cake, uh, it was uh, Malcolm's former colleague, uh, Brendan Nelson, then Defence Minister under the uh, Howard government, who announced in Beijing in the second half of 2007 that Australia would not be proceeding with the Quad. So the idea that when we confirmed in February the following year uh, that the Quad um, was not going to be advanced was reflecting the positions already taken in all four capitals by that stage. So I think it's time we finally, as it were, nailed that one to the post. In terms of Quad Mark II, the reality which I think um, subsequent governments have, uh, have faced uh, is that um, the strategic circumstances in the wider region have changed because of uh, the changed strategic posture of Xi Jinping. Um, as to the ultimate impact of the Quad, thing I explore in this article in Foreign Affairs magazine, again, we've got to be deeply realistic about one thing. Is it the assumption of uh, future Australian governments, like Tony Abbott's view in today's press, that the Indian Navy is going to go steaming into the South China Sea to defend Uncle Sam's interests if the balloon goes up over Taiwan? I think not. Yeah. Um, uh, will the Japanese necessarily do the same? Open question. We need to ask some very hard military questions about, as it were, the core strategic utility of this for the longer term. Secondly, there's this other question, and I'll leave it at this. Um, the military in China now use the Quad in their own efforts to ramp up the internal debate within China about a further increase in China's domestic military expenditure uh, in order to deal with this emerging four-part threat from around the rest of the region. Do I think the collaborative relationships which have evolved through the Quad on a whole range of foreign policy and other matters, including vaccine distribution in wider Asia, where, frankly, we've all failed miserably to get the vaccine to the developing world, I think it does have utility. It does have real utility. But we need to go into this with wide eyes open, not the blithering idiot remarks from Abbott uh, that we've seen in today's newspapers. Malcolm? Okay, well, look, I, I am not going to get into the history wars there, uh, but um, uh, let, 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 me, <laughs> let me just say is um, the, the one thing that there is no question about is that I revived the Quad, so that's, that's, that, that at least is, is, is uncontested. Now, um, look, India was always reluctant uh, during my time, when they needed to be wooed. And there were a couple of things that uh, Modi was anxious about uh, and his system, you know, was about. Because, I mean, obviously India's a big country and, a, you know, hugely complex politically. Um, one was, you know, they did feel that Australia had stepped away, okay? And so there was, you know, saying, well, if we go back into this again, 
how do we know you're not going to change your mind again? So that was that was important. It's called an Indian negotiating position. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, anyway, that was one thing. But a bigger issue was that India has a long tradition of non-alignment, okay? It, and it does not want to be lining up as an American ally against China. Now, it obviously every now and then feels China breathing down its neck. I mean, there's a whole anxiety about China. You know, the two countries are comparable size, but, you know, China has been much more successful uh, economically in terms of economic growth and so forth. And there's a, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a huge, a lot of complex issues of competitiveness and anxiety there. But the one thing we should not be doing is saying to India, oh, this is to line you up to be, you know, to be the next member of ANZUS uh, to take on China. And equally, just as Ke I agree with what Kevin said, that absolutely plays into the uh, paranoia that exists in China that America is trying to get everyone to contain it. So, you know, you have to... I think we've got a lot in common with India, huge, not least of which is all the Australians of Indian heritage. Uh, and, and, but we, you know, we, we have to just move gently, uh, avoid extravagant uh, language, uh, and just get closer. Now, you know, there are a lot of, in terms of military uh, collaboration, for example, uh, I mean, most of India's military kit is Russian. You know, they, they've actually, I think, I think they are second only to China. In fact, they might even be still ahead of China as Russia's biggest, um, you know, customer for military equipment. Uh, now, which of course makes interoperability with America or Australia very, diff very, very difficult. And there's a difference between deconfliction, where you have, you know, ships and planes and, you know, land forces working in the same theatre and trying to avoid shooting each other uh, and bumping into each other and interoperability such as we have with the United States where we've got the same uh, weapon systems and, you know, can speak the same language in every respect. So <clears throat> I think with India, uh, it's a relationship that was underdone for a long time. We're moving, we're moving to a closer strategic dialogue, better understanding of each other, but frankly, extravagant claims of the kind that we were talking about a moment ago are not helpful. Well, I'm afraid that we have run out of time. I would like to once again thank Mr Rudd and Mr Turnbull for their illuminating and wide-ranging comments this evening. I'm sure the audience members at home would agree that that was a rich and fascinating discussion. I would also like to thank Professor Robert Mann for curating this excellent event uh, and the Latrobe University events team and Latrobe Asia for their sterling work uh, in enabling this event to happen. And of course, to you, the audience, for tuning in. There is a short survey which you can complete at the end of this broadcast if you'd like to tell us about your experience this evening. This broadcast will be available to watch on demand approximately two hours from now and you will be sent an email to let you know when this is available. You can still share the link uh, with anybody who missed the event
event, but who you think might be interested uh, in what was covered. So uh, thank you once again, Mr Rudd and Mr Turnbull, and good night.